Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this is the first film commentary that I'll be doing for this podcast. I'll start off the film with a little bit of audio for you to sync up at home, and then it'll be just like we're watching the film, commenting on the music, and just hanging in the living room. But just so we don't interrupt our sync with the movie once it begins, we'll start with a quick commercial break. Be right back. Grab some popcorn and a beverage, relax, and get ready to talk about Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So, of course, that's the uh, 20th Century Fox fanfare written by Alfred Newman in 1933, that low-fidelity recording. And now we have this great uh, moment of silence before, bam, the Star Wars logo hits us. You know, I remember the original Star Wars having the logo almost be bigger than the screen, that the logo was so overwhelming that you ended up uh, almost inside it, you know, as if the screen couldn't contain Star Wars. And I'd be curious to know if you remember that as well, but... Uh, nowadays, and this is, by the way, the digital version of A New Hope that we're watching uh, off of iTunes, which is similar to the Blu-ray. Uh, someone on Twitter asked me that, you know, what version are we going to be watching? And and that's a, that's an important question with Star Wars. But this is the one that's the most widely available. So here you are, of course, in the main title, which we've covered so much on the soundtrack show. And really, it is just such a template for uh, these big themes moving forward in in movies, especially when you look at everything that John Williams does. And I know there's been a danger with the soundtrack show of, of it being the John Williams show. And I think that that's true when you look at sort of, um, you know, movie culture and this particularly geek culture. John Williams just has this embarrassment of riches when it comes to all of these franchises. I mean, Superman, Harry Potter, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Star Wars, of course, um, you know, just so many different franchises that he's done over the years. Jurassic Park. And, uh, and so, you know, just in hitting a lot of these different franchises that we all love, so much of it falls to John Williams. And of course, this, in my mind, um, really started it all. Uh, there's Princess Leia's piccolo there as we move into this incredibly famous shot. This is really uh, wonderful here, this uh, Rebel fanfare, big blast here. And then you get this call out to what I believe was Tempt in this moment right here, which is uh, Mars, bringer of war from Gustav Holst's The Planets. Uh, we covered that in our introductory episode. But these bum, 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 stabs. It's interesting, someone on Twitter pointed out that there are those same stabs at the end that we'll hear in the final battle. That the movie's kind of bookended with John Williams taking the orchestra and going bum, 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 bum. And of course, here now that we're aboard the Carillion Corvette and we're seeing uh, the droids here, we hear a light version of the Rebel fanfare in the background. Um, 
This is madness. You know, there's a lot of music at the top of this movie. I mean, it, it goes almost nonstop for the first 10 minutes, you know, from the title crawl all the way down onto the surface of the planet. Again, this is the Rebel fanfare here. And uh, as, you, as I mentioned in the theme tracker, you hear this quite a bit throughout the movie. I think it was something like 13 times. Um, and right away, it's, you know, after the main title, it's the first thing that you're hit with. And here's that uh, beginning of, of how John Williams treats the Empire in the original Star Wars. Again, without the Imperial March, this is all uh, done with uh, major minor seventh chords. Sorry, minor major seventh chords. Bum, 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 on the Death Star, uh, which I'll point out when we get to it. And of course, this, uh, this attack music here right at the top is based on uh, what is the early version of Darth Vader's theme. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Sound designer Ben Burt mentioned in the in the book uh, The Making of Star Wars by Jonathan Rinsler that uh, the opening of this movie really was so filled with sound and had so much bombastic music that um, they kind of just took a 50-50 approach in terms of what they favored in the mix that everything was equally as important. And as a mixer, that's really challenging when you've got all of this music, but you have all this detailed sound. I mean, all these explosions, all these laser blasts, laser passbys, uh, death yells. You've got R2 there trying to make some sounds as they're passing by. Yet you want to hear that music because you're establishing so much. And speaking of establishing, here's Vader's big entrance. Now that those chords, bomb, ba bomb, are just straight out of melodrama. You know, early 20th century, late 19th century, just, you know, here comes the, the dastardly villain. It's just mustache twirling on the screen in a galaxy far, far away. And here's our first listen to the... Uh, it's the first time we hear the Force theme, Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme, as Leia inserts the plans. And then we see a long shot of her. Da, 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 da. And you hear Princess Leia's theme. So already... I mean, what, we're, we're how many minutes into this movie? We're not even, I'm checking now. We're five minutes into this movie, and we've had Obi-Wan's theme, we've had the Rebel fanfare, we've had Luke's theme, and we've had uh, a dastardly entrance by Vader. Now we're here getting more of Leia's theme here. It's interesting to see how Richard Chu, Marsha Lucas, and Paul Hirsch cut this movie together, too, because I've made a lot of it being cut, you know, I've said this a few times on the show, that it was shot in documentary style. So what that means is that he set up multiple cameras and he just let them roll. He had a long shot camera and then he had a camera on this angle and a camera on a different angle. So he had three different cameras going and he would just cut back and forth in between them. And really they constructed this movie in the editing room rather than let the actors drive the pace. The, the edit really drove the pace. And the reason that's so significant for, for Star Wars music is that, you know, the, the music is reacting to that editorial process. Paul Hirsch has this quote where he says, you know, picture editing and music are the most linked in terms of the arts because they, they deal with time, taking place over time. You know, no one tells you, no one dictates how long you have to stare at a painting in order to get something out of it or what part of a painting or a sculpture to look at and for how long. Um, that's up to you. They're, they're static, so you experience them in your own time. Yet, in movie editing and in music, it's the artist that is dictating to you how long you are looking at what. 
they're they're telling you how fast this is going to go, how slow it's going to go. And as a as someone that's watching or an audience member, someone taking in the art, you're just along for the ride that the artist is providing. And that is really, really true here, uh, especially with Star Wars, because, of course, it's very famous to know they had so many different technical problems, um, you know, that they had to solve, including George Lucas starting his own company, Industrial Light and Magic, in 1975, because there were no visual effects companies to do this kind of thing. You know, the, the studio system really was, had shut down by the mid-70s, um, and which is why there was this rise in filmmakers like George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg. It was. It became uh, about these young artists coming out of film school that can do things cheaply, like Easy Rider, which we discussed, and they could go into um, making movies for very little money and turn a huge profit. Um, because of that, the studio system, which used to employ so many visual effects artists and uh, composers and used to have so many uh, resources at their disposal, there was no studio that was equipped to do a movie like Star Wars. And so George Lucas created his own company. And what, what did he do? He hired young kids out of school. And they figured out how to do this, uh, led by John Dykstra, uh, who created a motion control camera after he was essentially working on a, on a, a project, uh, I believe an architectural project, where he had used a motion control camera to fly over these model homes when he heard what George Lucas wanted to do and you know saw the aerial dogfights, World War II dogfights that he'd come in, he or that he had cut in, that George had cut in, Dykstra was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I know how we're going to do this. I'm going to pitch using motion control cameras. And that's exactly what he did. And they had to invent the technology to do this movie. So the visual effects, the editing uh, was a huge part of what made this movie a success because the raw footage... Uh, was really rough. You can see there when R2 is going down that hall, you can actually see that he's about to crash into the side wall. You can see cuts that happen mid-frame. You can see all of this sleight of hand that they're doing. Now, here's, the, by the way, the first moment in the film with no music up to, to this point. And this is R2 and 3PO wandering around in the desert. And you just hear the sound of uh, wind. And of course, the droids. But anyway, yeah. So getting back to uh, the importance of the music, this is why the temp score is so influential here, because the temp score is what helps editors cut and really sort of define how this movie is going to work. Um, this movie really became a success in post-production. It needed that sleight of hand. It needed that fast action to really push it forward. Uh, I had a conversation on the podcast in the last episode about time and how our perception of time has really sped up over years and years and years of movies like this. But for 1977, this was incredibly fast. It's a very fast-paced movie compared to other Star Wars movies that ironically look slow nowadays, but it was a very fast-paced movie. Um, and the editing is a huge part of that. And of course, the music is a huge part of that. Speaking of music, here comes the... Um, here comes a piece that was really influenced by Igor Stravinsky and The Rite of Spring, which is a piece from the 19-teens that debuted in Paris at the Ballet Russe, um, which caused a riot when it broke out because it was so atonal. Um, and uh, this ballet had people throwing chairs at each other, literally. Um, it's amazing the power of music could do that. But this piece right here in the Dune Sea is really John Williams honoring George's vision for the temp score, which is the second half of The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, a very, very influential piece. 
in all of orchestral music and in 20th century music. It's funny, Robert Lopez, who, who uh, co-wrote songs for Coco and Frozen with his wife, wife Kristen Anderson Lopez, he's a huge Star Wars fan. And we become friends over the years of, of uh, me podcasting and, and a mutual love for John Williams and Star Wars. And he actually just recently sent me a, a version of this with Stravinsky cut in um, after listening to the soundtrack show. And it's amazing how, how well it works, um, leaving little to no doubt in my mind that those pieces are, are what were used and once historically existed in Star Wars. And of course, now we wipe to the famous canyon scene where R2 is going through the canyon. I believe this was shot in Death Valley, not in Tunisia. There were, there were a couple of uh, pickups that were shot in California though most of the principal photography in 1976 was in death or was in uh, Tunisia. Um, but as we heard on the last episode, this scene was filled with music. But how wonderful that it's just this tension with no music. This is something that truly fascinates me, and it's why I spent so much time on the show talking about where to put music versus not where to put music, because it really does change how you feel about things. And because of that, you know, Constructing, you know, the, how an audience feels about something from point A to point B to point C is an art. And if you want something to pay off later, you need to make sure that they feel a certain way before that payoff. Like this jump scare right here where he hits R2. Also, it's after that scare you get this wonderful clunk. It's a great sound effect and this wonderful sound of that Ben Burt created. You know, of him falling over, boom, you know, this the R2-D2 vocals. It plays better without music. And then once you see the Jawas, you realize that they're kind of curious little creatures. By the way, we have to talk about Ben Burt and the sound effects of Ben Burt. He uh, is one of my heroes and um, arguably created some of the most famous sound effects of all time. They're part of our culture, part of the zeitgeist, if you will. And... Um, R2-D2, he cites as being the biggest challenge of everything he had to do. When he went out to record um, for Chewbacca, he recorded bears and tigers and walruses and, and constructed sentences based on these very chatty animals. But when it came to R2, uh, at first he was using synthesizers like an ARP 2600 or 25, yeah, 2600, and uh, created all these beeps and boops. But the feedback that he was getting is that it was too mechanical and it didn't have enough personality. And when they were describing the kind of personality that, that these sounds needed to have, um, they would be making noises back and forth to each other, George and, and Ben. And ultimately, I think they recorded themselves and ran themselves through what's called a vocoder, which is a, a process that basically makes your voice sound a little more digital, but it keeps the kind of pace and, and overall timbre or tone or emotion of your voice and just makes it sound a little more robotic. Um, to put in layman's terms. And when you combine those beeps and boops with the um, with the actual vocoded vocal performance, you get this wonderfully expressive robot droid. And even the beeps themselves, I think, at times can be very expressive. They're sort of, you know, uh, they can sound exasperated, they can sound scared, but this mixture of, of, of human voice and beeps is really, really, I think, uh, cited as being critical to the success of that character. And when you're doing these things and you're cutting in sounds, you know just watching the footage that there are certain emotional moments that you have to hit, that there are certain things that that character has to express. 
You know, you've got Anthony Daniels in a suit basically talking to an inanimate object on set, and you're in the post-production process trying to sell that and make that relationship work. And it's something we take for granted in watching the movie because R2 has so much personality, but that personality uh, was handcrafted by a sound designer. Now, here, of course, we have a, uh, a special edition insert of these um, dewbacks, stormtroopers on dewbacks and an Imperial shuttle uh, shot, I believe, in 1996. And uh, because of that, they didn't re use the original cue here in this cut. What we're actually hearing is something from the Death Star when Han and Luke are walking around in disguise as stormtroopers on the Death Star, making their way to the detention block. Um, that's what this cue is here. Bomb, ba 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 bomb. It's funny, you can actually hear uh, in that queue little hints of what sounds like are, are going to develop into the Imperial March. Here's another pickup of the Sandcrawler that was shot in 1996. Uh, wasn't in the original film. And then now we're back to the original here as we make our way to the homestead. It's really interesting to note, too, that here we are, you know, 16 minutes into the film right now, and we arrive at the homestead. We still haven't met our main character. We've met Jawas, we've met Vader, we've met Princess Leia, we've been introduced to the Force theme, although we don't really know what it is yet. Uh, but we've heard all this other music, and uh, we're following these droids, and it isn't until we come out here and we start this droid auction that we actually get to hear Luke Skywalker's theme again, 17 minutes after we heard it in the main title. So it's really interesting how this musically unfolds. So far, we've only had two moments of no music. One always by design out in the desert, and then the other one in, uh, in the canyon there uh, with music omitted. So here, of course, we have more of the Jawas. We have this wonderful chromatic line that's... It's just wonderful music. I mean, John Williams really showing his humor here. He's hitting the temp with Stravinsky. I'm assuming this was Stravinsky. Still, the Rite of Spring. Yet he's just kind of giving it this... this personality that uh, is just so interesting. And then his transition here into Luke's theme. And again, stated softly as Bruce says, Luke, Luke. Get this wonderful French horn, just stating it very beautifully, lyrically, quietly. This is the, our, our hero's origin story here. So without saying a word, they've entered, well, actually they said one word, they said Luke. So we know that this is Luke. We don't really have any other context for him except for the fact that he shares that same theme as the opening of the movie. So on a subconscious level, we're being told by the director and John Williams that that character is important. He must be our, our young hero. Even though his opening of this movie is not necessarily heroic. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. You know, he kind of comes across as, as goofy at the top of this. And I, I really think that that's by design. I remember seeing this in 1997 in the movie theaters, and when he says this line coming up about going to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters, um, he really, it got a laugh. I mean, people were waiting for the line. Here it is right here. Take these two over to the garage, will you? I want them cleaned up for dinner. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. <laughs> you can waste the audience laughed when they clapped in, oh, in on, January of 97 when we saw it all together in the theater. That was actually a really incredible time because... You know, for, for people that had grown up with Star Wars to suddenly, you know, in 1997, I was 21, I think. 
And I was in the movie theater watching a movie that I loved with an audience for the first time really in my life because the original movie came out when I was two. And so I saw it on home video a million times and then eventually on television and Showtime. And um, I just loved the movie. To suddenly see it in theaters with an audience and hear what they laugh at, that was one of the biggest laughs. My point in bringing up, you know, the Tashi Station line is that Luke Skywalker has a character arc. He doesn't start out as a hero. He starts out as a kid. And that's really important. It's really important to establish. And then, of course, uh, the music kind of helps develop that as well. The soft statements of Luke's theme at the beginning so that you get these really bold themes later. By the time he's swinging across the chasm with Princess Leia and actually doing something heroic and fulfilling his dream to get off this rock and do something. You're, you're hearing the potential early in the movie, but you're not, you're not doing the heroic things yet. And this is something that John Williams is actually really good at. Um, if you watch the AFI uh, Lifetime Achievement Award special that he did, he talked about, a lot about this in E.T., which is that he hints at these big moments, these big musical moments, but doesn't always give them to you when you want them. So by the time he really does give them to you late in the movie, you feel like you've earned them. And in the case of E.T., he would hint at the, the big flying theme, but it wasn't until they were flying on the bicycle that you really got that satisfying full statement of the theme. The same is true with Luke's theme, although ironically you get it so big at the top as an introductory, they, he keeps it from you in that brassy, uh, fanfarish way after that, it's it's denied. We're, we're denied that theme until we get to the big moments in the end of the movie, you know, or I should say in the back half of the movie, you know, swinging across the chasm. Um, what's interesting, too, and, and we'll get to Return of the Jedi later when we uh, are doing the soundtrack show, but the actual cue, Return of the Jedi, does that same thing. You get this wonderful return uh at Jabba's sail barge of that theme, uh, the, the Luke main title, when Luke suddenly gets his lightsaber back and turns the whole situation on its head, you get that theme again. So withholding these themes is actually as important as stating them. Speaking of stating them, we're about to get Princess Leia here again, but right now it's kind of shrouded in mystery. This hologram, this message here. You just have these flutes. Right now, we are associating the sound of a flute and a piccolo with the And also mystery. It's a wonderful thing, by the way, that Michael Giacchino did in Rogue One, if you go and watch Rogue One, when uh, you meet Bodhi, Rook, and he's got the message about the Death Star plans. Um, and But his head's been messed with. Um, you hear Giacchino quote the, those flute lines there, as if the message is traveling from... from... Uh, Galen Erso to Bodhi to uh, to Princess Leia, and now, of course, in this movie from Princess Leia to Obi Wan Kenobi to R two to Obi Wan Kenobi, it's kind of a nice little musical through line there. But now we're actually hearing Princess Leia's theme, fully stated. This is a really important establishing moment for her character. And is really the full, first full lyrical statement of, of, uh, of, of a big theme like this. Uh, besides Luke's theme, we've only heard part of the Force theme, but actually hearing that full theme, and now we're hearing it again for a second time. So you get it twice in a row here. 
So really reinforcing uh, this Princess Leia theme here. And if you were Luke Skywalker, and therefore the audience, and you've been out here in the desert for a while, we know what Luke Skywalker's missing out on. We saw the battle at the beginning, but this is his gateway to adventure. And of course, R2 tricks him into removing the restraining bolt here. Gives him just enough of the message to manipulate him so that he can get out of there. Another really interesting thing about this scene is if you listen to it closely, when I'm not talking over it, is that you can hear when production sound versus ADR fades in and out. You can hear uh, the lines that were recorded on the set because you'll hear all of this noise. You'll hear room tone. You'll hear noise. And if you listen closely in this movie, you can actually hear the whir of the camera. You can hear every once in a while. Another great example of that is when um, before Obi-Wan Kenobi and Vader have their fight and said, Sir Alec Guinness says, only a master of evil, Darth. They, they fade up the production sound and they actually use what he, re, what he recorded on set there. And you can actually hear the camera whirring. It's either the camera or it's the lightsaber spinning, but you can hear a whir in that shot. But yeah, you can hear production sound. You can hear a lot of noise in this movie and you can hear how in the mix they very, very cleverly fade it in and out. It's a complete illusion. You know, they, you want to capture as much natural production sound as you can off the set because that is always going to yield the best performances from the actors. You have a one-to-one -one with the image that you're seeing and what they actually said while you're watching that image. And uh, you get the best performance. So anytime you have to do ADR, um, you're always at risk of, of, of a performance hit. However, the performance hit is in most cases, way better than having us as the audience have to suffer through the noise that you're actually trying to go in and fix. I mean, there's a reason why uh, dialogue replacement, you know, or dubbing exists after the fact. It's because, you know, movie sets are noisy. And a movie like Star Wars, too. I mean, look, I've never been on a Star Wars movie set, so I need to say that right now. However, I've been you know, working working with uh, those folks for a long time and, and uh, certainly have done a lot of cleanup of of uh, production dialogue in my time, uh, it's noisy. It's really noisy. And you just kind of have to work around it. Um, that's why sound stages exist. You know, that's why quiet on the set exists. So you can get clean dialogue. But a movie like Star Wars, um, you know, the Death Star scenes, yes, shot on a movie set. Scenes like this, shot on location, you know. Uh, and even then, shot on location, but you're talking to someone that's muffled via a mask. You got to replace all of that. And here's this huge, wonderful, wonderful moment, the binary sunset. Now, let's just think about this here. We're, we're 25 minutes and 42, three seconds into the movie. And let's just look at how long this goes on, this moment, as he stares at the twin suns. And you get this gorgeous melody. That is George Lucas devoting a ton of screen time to music. That's pure character building. And of course, now we get the Rebel Alliance, which is neat because he's looking around for R2, and R2, of course, is gone. Why? Because he's on a mission. What are you doing hiding back there? It wasn't my fault. Now, this is really interesting because he gives us Luke's theme and the Force theme and the Rebel Alliance all kind of in the same cue. So he goes outside and you get this wonderful clarinet line of Luke's theme. 
I mean, musically, you could play this moment so many different ways. You could play it, you know, as dramatic music. You can play it, you can play Luke's fear because he's afraid that he lost his droid and he says, oh boy, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. You know, the music's not playing that. The music's not playing his fear. The music's not playing uh, the excitement of him being gone or the tension of the moment. The music is actually playing against type right now and it's giving us almost a macro Greek chorus view. And what I mean by that, a Greek chorus is, you know, in traditional drama, a Greek chorus is this sort of macro, almost godlike body that is commenting on the action. It's not in the action. So the music's not in Luke's emotions right now. The music is actually taking more of a legendary Greek chorus view of things, that the force is at work and the creation of a hero is at work. It's not necessarily worried about Luke's adolescent fears of retribution from his uncle. It's actually thinking more about a bigger story by telling the Force theme there, or by using the Force theme there, by using Luke's theme there. And of course, now we get to this nice, bouncy Landspeeder music. And of course, there's a lot more Landspeeder music on the soundtrack because there's this whole deleted scene that they shot uh, in front of, uh, you know, using rear projection. Uh, of a close-up of of Luke and 3PO on the land speeder, but all that's gone. Now, of course, here's that wonderful Tusken Raider music. Um, you know, John Williams uh, and Jerry Goldsmith were were contemporaries, and Jerry Goldsmith uh, was just the master at using different instruments, uh, non-traditional instruments, in order to create unique sounds with an orchestra. I mean, an orchestra is incredibly expressive as it is, just in the traditional Viennese. Um, way of thinking about it. But Jerry Goldsmith would bring in all kinds of crazy instruments. I mean, Planet of the Apes, the original Planet of the Apes is a, is a wonderful example of that. Um, you know, using different horns and, and uh, different percussion in order to convey this, this uh, alien world that, uh, that Charlton Heston is seemingly on. He does it again in Star Trek The Motion Picture with uh, V'ger, you know, creating this crazy stringed kind of long... Uh, Oh, see, I don't have my notes in front of me, but this really long sort of stringed instrument through a tube, like a horn, creates these like bang, bang, you know, using these crazy instruments in order to make new sounds. Um, I always felt like even though there's not a literal call out to Jerry Goldsmith and Planet of the Apes, I always felt like that Tusken Raider moment was a bit of a, a bit of a nod to Jerry Goldsmith and Planet of the Apes. At this point in 1977, the biggest science fiction movie the most successful science fiction movie to date had been Stanley Kubrick's 2001 from 1968. Um, Planet of the Apes was successful, but they nothing made money like Star Wars did. So there was some science fiction tradition. Uh, there's an updated sound for the uh, Crate Dragon War. There was some sci science fiction tradition, you know, musically that had been established by people like Jerry Goldsmith uh, and Stanley Kubrick. Uh, who, by the way, completely replaced his composer score. We have to do a show about that sometime. Uh, poor Alex North had his entire score replaced with uh, orchestral repertoire, like the Blue Danube, which we played in the Mario Brothers episode. Anyway, and here is a wonderful moment where Alec, Gilles, Alec Guinness pulls back his hood. Hello there. Come here, my little friend. Don't be afraid. And you get that worry, call. You'll be all right that famous force theme call of the horns with the, the strings giving tension. By the way, this is a might be a horrible thing or a wonderful thing to admit. I'll let you be the judge, but this just speaks to the power of music 
1998, there was a trailer for episode one, The Phantom Menace, that opened with that music cue. And ever since then, I can't remove that association because of the pure excitement and crazy joy that I felt watching that trailer for the first time in front of Meet Joe Black. I skipped class to go see Meet Joe Black and watch and watch uh, the Phantom Menace trailer. And when they cut that in in the opening of the trailer, uh, uh, you know, you see the Lucasfilm logo. That little piece of music is just wonderful, as is this. Listen to this little celeste here. Obi-Wan Kenobi. And these strings. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I have not heard in a long time. You get it again. Because this is the first movie in the franchise, the amount of themes that you get in the first half of the movie is really heavy compared to later movies in the installment where they really save the Force theme or Luke's theme for big moments. And we're getting them a lot here in this first film. In Empire, you really do too. But man, what, we're not even 32 minutes into the film and we've heard the Force theme quite a bit. Very interesting. I think we better get people indoors. are coming back. The sand people My understanding of the sound of the uh, Tusken Raiders was that there was actually a donkey that was being used to carry film equipment into the canyons that uh, George Lucas actually thought was interesting sounding and had the film crew record for Ben Bird. Um, and that sound of a braying donkey became the sound of the Tusken Raiders. Can you stand? We've got to get out of here before the sand people return. I don't think I can make it. You go on, Master Luke. There's no sense in you risking yourself on my account. I'm done for. Wonderful performance by Anthony Daniels. And of course, a very famous story of how he was going to be replaced. His voice was going to be replaced by someone that sounded more like a used car salesman. But his performance was just too strong as sort of the very English butler. And and so it just stuck. Of course, here we have a moment with no music. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I think it's important to give us a breather now and again. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. Now, of course, we're about to go into yet another scene where we're learning about the Force, we're learning about the mission, we're learning about the Clone Wars, we're learning what happened to Luke's father, at least at this point, according to Obi-Wan. And this is that first example that I was talking about, about how the lightsaber is so tonal that whenever it was on screen, for the most part, they decided not to have any music. Uh, The fear at the time was that the tone of the lightsaber and the tone of the music would clash. They wouldn't sound pleasing together, Um, especially in their first film. Of course, in later films, they do it everywhere. But this is a great example of of caution, of doing something new. And this sound, beautiful sound. You know, a mixture of this kind of electric... Uh, electric, uh, you know, sizzle tone at the top that gives way into this kind of uh, broken uh, monitor mixed with a USC film projector motor and and then, of course, taking a microphone and waving it in front of a speaker and re-recording it to get those swings. Like, just genius. Genius work on the part of Ben Bird. And, of course, here you have Vader's theme, the first time you hear... Obi-Wan Kenobi talk about Darth Vader. You hear it in the low, low winds. He betrayed and murdered your father. I think it's actually just a clarinet in the low register there. 
Vader was seduced by the dark side of the force. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the, the force. force. And then as soon as he says the force, you get the force theme. <laughs> there it is again. I mean, with Obi-Wan, he's been on screen for what, maybe five minutes, and we've already heard it stated three times. One of these days, I want to talk about Richard Wagner and 19th century opera. And it's funny, you know, someone said this on Twitter, not, not even 12 hours ago. They said, because for a lot of people in our generation, Star Wars was our gateway to orchestral music. That is absolutely true with me. When I was in college and really studying music, I was comparing everything to Star Wars because of my fascination with it. And because of that, became huge fans of other things, you know. Um, because of that level of creativity, it made me understand how wonderful and creative music of the past is and how wonderful creative soundtracks in general are. And um, there's something about the open... Uh, the open attitude that Lucasfilm has had about sharing behind-the-scenes stories about how they did it, Industrial Light and Magic and Skywalker Sound and Ben Burtt and John Williams, that made me forever curious about being creative, about being an artist, about how these things are done, and really getting appreciation for that artistry. I mean, I have such a hunger for it. It's why I do this show, and I think that's why people listen to this show. We want to know how this stuff was made. We actually want to see... Um, Behind the curtain, we want to know, you know, we want to see the wizard, the grand wizard. You know, we want to know how the magician does his tricks. It's part of the the joy of it is just seeing um, the ingenuity of how these things are put together. Um, but that goes with, I think that translates well into any art, visual arts, um, and certainly music. And it just made me fascinated to go back and really study music, especially when you when you study history and you look at sort of the cultural context. You know, going to an opera in the 19th century was like going to Disneyland. It was like making a pilgrimage. It was like uh, seeing the latest and greatest in 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 sets, the latest and greatest in costuming, the latest and greatest in technology. You know, and especially in the in the 19th century, the electric light came in. You know, even in Verdi's lifetime. Uh, from when he started to when he finished, he actually saw lighting and costuming and opera, operatic machinery get better. And the only time you could actually hear a symphony orchestra was to actually go and travel to hear one because there was no recorded sound. So going to the opera was very much like seeing something like Star Wars, but even better because you would it's like, it's like going to Disneyland. You know, it's, you, you're making a pilgrimage to see something wonderful, the latest and greatest of everything. And music has always been such a huge, huge part of that. And in the case of, the, of uh, opera in the 19th century, was the biggest part. The only difference in film, because film really is opera. It is opera, but it's more like a concerto for dialogue. They're not singing, they're talking, but that's technology that kind of uh, makes that uh, possible. You know, that you're able to mix sound, you're able to speak at a natural level and and yet have an, a, a hundred-piece orchestra in the background. Um, but this technology um, really is part of that operatic tradition, and certainly using themes or leitmotifs, so back to Wagner and, and other composers like him, using these themes to tell stories, to introduce characters, is, is a way of kind of helping us track the action. And it's a way of solving a problem uh, that every storyteller has, which is exposition is kind of boring. You know, in order to really get into the action, you have to have an understanding of what's at stake, who the characters are, what the galaxy is. 
you're world building while you're actually trying to, and you're introducing these characters while you're actually trying to put them in interesting situations. But in order for that to be interesting, we have to have context for who they are. That's a problem in any script, exposition. It's hard to get through that in a way that's compelling and entertaining. And uh, it's something that Star Wars does very well. And it's something that a, an, or- an orchestra is very, very good at assisting with. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. This is the, the cause that we're fighting for. This is what's at stake. This is the force. I mean, you're having to explain all of that. And here we are, you know, just 40 minutes into the film. Uh, now the real action is starting to heat up. This solo trumpet in this cue really reminds me of, uh, of, of taps or a funeral. Um, these, little, these little associations that we'll make in the 20th and 21st century about, about how instruments are used. John Williams uses that to kind of evoke a bit of a, a funeral or death or sadness, seeing all of these poor slaughtered Jawas. Now the realization sets in as he sees the droids. Oh no, my family's in danger. Here they may have learned who they sold them to, and that would lead them back home. Now here is a hugely famous cue, the burning homestead. And we hear it start in the low strings, kind of doing this reverse dies irae. And now the high strings take over, and as he takes off on the land speeder, the force is at work. This is destiny. This is John Williams conveying destiny. And now we have, we know what it means because we've heard it enough to know that this is important. Oh, and the shot was upsetting to me as a kid. It's still upsetting to me. And we get it again. But this time in this sort of legato strings and this sounds like cello celli playing really high up on the neck maybe some viola in there but really really th- like a thick string sound and of course the horn's taking over with ds irae now this is interesting here comes the death star motif da, 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 da. and just in a split second we get vader into leia listen to this da, 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 da. and as soon as he opens the cell we get leia I mean, we just went from the Force theme to the Death Star to Vader to Leia all in a minute. I mean, that's the orchestra working really, really hard to help us track this cross-cutting and what's going on and, and how we're supposed to feel about what. Here we go from tragedy to fear to the bad guy to the good guy or good girl, you know, with Princess Leia. And the orchestra is just giving us context for all of that. I mean, the visuals are as well, you know. Uh, obviously, the everything's working to do this, but the orchestra is really working very hard to to let us know what's going on. Now we continue the funeral pyre, pyre of the Jawas. There's nothing you could have done, Luke, had you been there. You'd have been killed, too. Someone asked me, uh, actually it was the, for the Forbes article, you know, about maybe people turning their noses at, at movies and concert. And I just think there's a tremendous irony. First of all, I think the good news is that most, most real music fans w- would never turn their nose at, at, uh, at, this kind of, at, at this kind of entertainment. You know, I mean, this is, I, 
orchestral music begs to be popular. It should be the most popular thing in music, you know, and, and it certainly was before. In the 20th century, we kind of lost sight of that with atonalism and serialism and, and uh, you know, um, popular music and concert hall music split. And, uh, and that was never the case before the 20th century. It used to be that you would go to the symphony hall and you would see the latest and greatest opera or symphony, uh, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, when it left the aristocracy. Um, it's supposed to be for the people. It's supposed to be popular. We're supposed to be experiencing these wonderful sounds. Why wouldn't we want to? By the way, this music right here that they're using for the special edition of Mos Eisley, this is all the um, uh, Dianoga and uh, Trash Compactor music that they've cut in here. And then they cut back to the original film's cue that I played on, on last week's show, which is the uh, the this is the Imperial Stormtrooper slash Vader theme here. But now listen to this mind trick music. We don't need to see his identification. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. That you can go about his business. You can go about your business. And look at the bewildered look. Look at the music playing off of the bewildered look on Luke's, Luke's face. What just happened? And by extension, we're doing the same thing. What just happened? And now you get the end of the travel music here. As they slow down. And of course you're getting the course theme as well. I can't abide those jobbers. Disgusting creatures. Go on. Go on. And now no music, little musical break. Right before we go into the cantina. I love those distant ship pass really by sounds, too. Do you here that'll take us to Alderaan? Uh, most of the best freighter pilots that will be found here only watch a step. This place could be a, this place could be a little rough. And here we go. Right into the uh, cantina music here. Long R2. Right after this noisy do-back. <laughs> yep, and here we are. This parade of monsters. It's interesting how this movie unfolds. You know, you start with a battle, which is very exciting, and then it clamps down into this desert planet and becomes very pedestrian, which is a really smart way of introducing the larger galaxy to us because suddenly we are with the robots and now we're with Luke and it's just as much of a crazy experience for Luke as it is for us. So it's a highly relatable character here that's looking around in just complete you know, awe with his jaw dropped at everything he's seeing. He feels in over his head. We kind of are too. Ha, <laughs> R2, forgive the pun. And now he's going to lose his allies. Yeah, as as the bartender, Wuton? Is that Wuton? Uh, kicks the droids out. So now he's in there on his own. Obi-Wan Kenobi and just saddles up to the bar, tries to make himself, you know, fit in. This is great. Bartender's surly look on his face. So good. All these different aliens. Listen to how the uh, listen to how the music is processed. It's coming from the distance. It's not. Uh, it's not part of the actual soundtrack. It's an interesting thing in film history too, in terms of uh, music. Originally. 
directors were very concerned about making sure you could always see musicians on screen if you ever heard music. And that eventually went away, that fear of, well, how are people going to make the leap to film music being there if they can't see musicians? This was a real concern with early filmmakers, really all the way up to Hitchcock. There's a famous story uh, when they were doing Lifeboat where he says to Bernard Herrmann, oh, and here comes the record scratch moment. No blasters, no blasters. And the music stops. Saber. And everyone goes, meh. It's so great. But anyway, Bernard Herman, this is a great story with Bernard Herman, uh, the composer, and Hitchcock. Hitchcock says to Bernard Herman, if you have two people in a lifeboat in the middle of the or- in the middle of the ocean alone. Where is the music coming from? And Bernard Herrmann, without skipping a beat, turns to him and says, the music is coming from the same place you put your camera. (laughs) Meaning we're making a movie. There's a camera in the middle of the ocean. No one's questioning that. You know, this is a suspension of disbelief. It's make-believe. And it really is a funny thing that they were so concerned about, about music back in the day in terms of why you're hearing this orchestra in the background. Um, but it was a real concern. But the reason I think it's funny is that that's what opera is. No one's concerned that that people in a story like La Boheme, you know, or uh, or even earlier than that, you know, uh, let's say the Magic Flute or or Cosi van Tutte or whatever by Mozart. No one's worried about the fact that there's an orchestra there. No one's worried about the fact that uh, you know uh, that that the characters are singing. So it's kind of a, a, a silly concern when you consider how long we've been listening to music and drama, all the way back to the Greeks. And uh, no one thought that there was, you know, necessarily an orchestra in the middle, in the middle of their story, you know. There's no orchestra in Valhalla uh, when, you're, when you're watching the ring cycle, you know, just, there's just action. Um, but, but this idea of diegetic music versus orchestral music and going back and forth. That sort of worldizing and seeing the musicians is kind of important to establish that our characters can hear it as well versus orchestral music and and making those transitions on top of each other, which happens pretty often. It's amazing that we've been conditioned our entire lives to understand intuitively without having to be explained what's what. I mean, I've, I've talked about this a lot in terms of diegetic music versus uh, non-diegetic music or music that that only the audience hears. Um, it's something that you listening to this podcast have instinctively known your entire life. It's just very clear. Um, that is a, a dramatic tradition that we have all accepted and it's something that works. But these were big concerns back in the day. I'm, you know, when Max Steiner was, was doing King Kong, he put a, a huge orchestra in the middle of the jungle and, uh, you know, putting that style of music in a movie like that, or think about the deep South gone with the wind, for example, you know, he put a, he put a whole, Viennese orchestra in the Deep South. You know, he wasn't playing Dixie or, or, or something like that. You know, he wasn't using um, uh, 19th century instruments from the South. He was using a full symphonic orchestra and everyone went with it. You know, we're, we're used to this. It's fine. Everyone makes that jump. We all willingly make that jump together. 
We don't sit around and question, well, you know, was there a brass section in a galaxy far, far away? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. We don't have to worry about that. Um, but there are certain conventions and rules when it comes to establishing diegetic versus non-diegetic music. And it certainly helps to see that Bith band uh, playing those spacey instruments when you hear the cantina musics for us to know basically that, that yes, that, that music is coming from that band. Um, so when diegetic music is being established, you'll usually or almost always see that when you hear something that you know that the characters are supposed to be hearing. And you'll hear reverb or EQ filtering, whatever, to help us know, hey, you know what? This is coming from this space. Also, you do a hard cut away like that and the music disappears and notice there's no music over those TIE fighters. That's another way of knowing, no, that music was in that space. And when we cut away from that space, the music is gone. Which is probably why we don't have music in this particular scene. We just had wall-to-wall music in the cantina. What do you mean? So that helps, that helps us know that that was diegetic as well. Or what they call source music. And now we're back in with an orchestra. You have these woodwinds as 3PO and R2 are hiding from these stormtroopers. That one's locked. Move on to the next one. I can't tell you how many times we listen to these stormtrooper lines uh, when thinking about doing stormtrooper voices for Rogue One or Force Awakens. You know, these these uh, these voices that were cast back in the day. You know, uh, whether they were Los Angeles voiceover, you know, commercial or radio voiceovers, or actors like Terry McGovern who uh, voiced uh, the stormtroopers, especially in the in the scene with the Jedi mind trick. You know, they have a very specific sound to those movies um, uh, that we try and emulate. And the music goes dark when we see this hooded figure here. This is another great example of musical storytelling here. You go from, you know, hearing Luke's theme. Of course, now we cut to this Jabba theme, or excuse me, this Jabba scene. Right here, Jabba. And in the special edition, this is actually using a fully stated version of Jabba the Hutt's theme from Return of the Jedi, which is interesting to note, and we'll talk about Return of the Jedi later, but Jabba's theme was really downplayed in the final version of Return of the Jedi. You hear it stated on the soundtrack quite a bit, but you never really hear it stated fully in the movie Return of the Jedi. Yet here in the special edition scene with uh, Harrison Ford and this new CG Jabba the Hutt, you're actually hearing... You're actually hearing this music. Look, Java, even I get boarded sometimes. You think I had a choice? But I got a nice, easy charter now. I'll pay you back, plus a little extra. I just need a little more time. Jabba the Hutt has this wonderful, disgusting sound to him as well, which is really nice. You know, that kind of casserole-y type of wetness in his sound. And, and of course, I love the sound of his tail moving along the ground, which we had never heard before this special edition. And they all leave. And you get Jabba's theme one more time over Boba Fett. The ship's as fast as and now we're back to the original movie with the original cue. And you have Luke's theme. And again, transitions. 
into those dark ones with the Imperial spy giving location information. And what's really interesting is nowadays when you see the Falcon, it's usually greeted by some big fanfare. And when you see it in this movie, the orchestra just kind of goes, what a piece of junk. Which is a, a kind of a bold choice when you consider how much money they spent building, building this set and this Falcon. Interestingly enough, only half of the Millennium Falcon was built to scale for this first movie on a sound set or on a soundstage in Elstree. And then they just redressed the set for the Death Star. So the same set that's used for Docking Bay 94 was also used for the Death Star hangar. Stop that ship! Blast them! And now you're getting a version of the Force theme over Han getting our crew out of here. So that's really a great example of it being the Force theme and not a theme for Obi-Wan, you know, because it's the Force at work. It's destiny at work. And you get it again here, in the background on the strings. That's a lot of Obi-Wan Kenobi Force theme because that's who the passengers are. It's not about Han and Chewie. It's about the passengers. It's about uh, the mission. These are great triplets, horn triplets. That's really cool. Why don't you outrun them? I thought you said this thing was fast. Watch your mouth, kid. You're going to find yourself floating home. We'll be safe enough once we make the jump to hyperspace. I know a few maneuvers, we'll lose them. Hear those horns again. Really cool. Kind of hinting at Luke's theme here, with the low, low brass. But never quite giving it to us. But that's our hero in danger right there. What's that flashing? The loser is a flecker shield. Both trap yourselves in. I'm going to make a jump to light speed. Here's the Death Star theme again. Ba, 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 ba. Now, this is really interesting. I'm looking at the planet here, and this is a, a wonderful musical sequence as well. Where Leia comes in is uh, the interrogation didn't work, so now he's trying a new tactic. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on. And that great line from Carrie Fisher. Charming. Trying to figure out how much accent to give Princess Leia. It's it's just wonderful. You know, and, and it kind of gave uh, life to this idea that characters have a diplomatic accent and then they have a non-diplomatic American accent. You hear Natalie Portman do it as well in uh, The Phantom Menace. That when she's talking to someone like Peter Cushing, um, she's got a much much more English accent. Of course, Carrie Fisher had spent a year studying drama in London before she was cast as Princess Leia. Since you are reluctant to provide us with the location of the rebel base, I have chosen to test this station. Now listen to this cue. On your home planet of no. Kind of hints at DSERA, no but it gives you this kind of eerie music as you're looking at this blue orb floating in space and uh, knowing that it's in danger. And what happens in the next few moments 
could cost or save billions of lives. There's DSRA. Death hangs in the air. You see, Lord Vader, she can be reasonable. Continue but he lies. You're a liar, Tarkin. You're a liar. Far too trusty. Dantooine is too remote to make an effective demonstration, but don't worry. We will deal with your rebel, rebel friends soon, soon enough. enough. He's so good, Peter Cushing. He's so good. Mm, this, this is great. These horns calling the doom of this thing. And you're getting dun 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 dun. These wonderful laser sounds by Ben Huge explosions. And then you cut away to the Falcon. And even though you just had that huge moment, they had the music out for a moment. You had that huge musical moment with the explosion of Alderaan, but when you cut back with the lightsaber, the music is gone. Why? Because there's a lightsaber on screen. But the second he deignites, the music starts up again. It's really interesting. Really interesting how they how they just avoided scoring on top of a saber, except for the very end of Obi-Wan Kenobi's fight. And this is just wonderful sound effects here. You've got so much going on here. You've got the Dajaric table and they're playing this sort of space hologram chess. And then of course you've got the lightsaber in the background off camera, just so you know that the training is going on off camera. Uh, and uh, the sound of the Falcon, the sound of R2. You know, so much sound happening to tell the story here. He made a fair move, screaming about it, can't And here is where you actually learn something about Chewbacca. But sir, nobody nice. about upsetting a droid. That's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Oh, it's so good. Wookies are known to do that. So yeah, he looks friendly, but point, he's sir. dangerous. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. It's a great character building moment while also moving the plot forward and kind of uh, letting us in on some of the quirkiness of the world here. Meanwhile, you've got Jedi training happening in the background. You know, so you've got all of these things happening at once in this scene. This is a nice down moment where you're learning a lot about our characters. First of all, you also learn that Obi-Wan can feel through the force tremendous loss of life. You know, that something horrible has just happened. But you're going to learn even more about the Force here, about let go and trust your feelings. You don't believe in the Force, do you? And you learn a lot about Han Solo here. I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field that controls my destiny. It's all a lot of simple tricks and nonsense. It's another great dramatic device is you have the, the naysayer, someone that doubts the religion or doubts the mystical. Um, he's a, a, a very strong archetype to play against something that we now know as an audience member to be true and to be true, to be true in terms of the rules of this world. The rules of this world state that the force is real um, because we know that Obi-Wan Kenobi just felt that. We've seen, um, you know, we've seen Darth Vader choke someone from across a room. Um, you know, we've we're now seeing uh, we've seen Obi Wan you know imitate a crate dragon, and he's we've seen him mind trick someone. Those are all really important indications to us that the Force is real. So we know because the filmmaker's been telling us that this is real. And uh, Han Solo 
Look, good against remotes is this is setting up a great character arc for him in order for him to accept that those things are, are real. Looks like we're coming up on Alderaan. And again, no real music in this entire scene, except for when the lightsaber was out earlier. That's good. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Yes? No music here as well. Our scout ships have reached onto it. They found the remains of a rebel base, but they estimate that it has been deserted for some time. They are now this conducting an extensive here. search of the surrounding system. There's a great moment here where Vader shakes his fist and, and James Earl Jones' line is out of sync with what they shot. He's shaking his fist in silence. <laughs> he caught that. But I've always thought that that was funny that um, the, the voiceover cleared faster than the actual edit cleared. Still no music. What do you mean? Where is it? So I'm trying to tell you, kid, it ain't there. It's totally blown away. What? How? Destroyed by the Empire. I love those uh, meteor pass-bys or those pieces of planet pass-by sounds that he has in there. And of course, the alarms. The sound of TIE fighters, too. Again, this is another brilliant uh, stroke on Ben Burt's part. This idea of taking basically a, a, an elephant sound and pitching it way up. I've actually looked at other elephant recordings and used them in like Force Unleashed and some other uh, titles I worked on just so that there's more elephant material that I can turn into TIE fighters. Uh, that and if you have a – if you take a car and you drive on wet pavement and you kill the engine and you just hear the – actually, you don't even have to kill the engine. You just hear – you know, a car kind of strolling by on wet pavement and it goes and then you add what's called a tremolo and it goes like that. And then taking that squeal again, like an elephant squeal and pitching it way up, you know, for the sound of a TIE fighter blaster. It's just amazing um, some of the sources that were used uh, in uh, in some of these sounds. And now, of course, the music comes in as we spot the Death Star for the first time. This ominous music. I think you're right. Full reverse. Chewy lock in the auxiliary power. Now, it's interesting what he does here. Uh, he goes from ominous to eventually using the rebel fanfare. Why are we still moving towards it? We're caught in a trap that's pulling us in. There's got to be something you can do. There's nothing I can do about it, kid. I'm full power. I'm going to have to shut down. They're not going to get me without a fight. You can't win, but there are alternatives to fighting. Here comes a huge, huge statement of the Rebel fanfare. Here it comes. And I love the defiance of that. You know, I love, I love that. You know, our 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 catch-all theme for this crew is what's playing. You know, it's not bum 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 bum. bum. It's it's kind of hopeful that the rebel fanfare is playing as they're pulling in. You know, it, it, it keeps it fun. Also, because we have eyes on the Falcon, they're using the rebel fanfare. But once we have eyes on the stormtroopers, then uh, then you actually hear more yes. ominous music. A freighter entering the remains of the Alderaan system. Its markings match those of a ship that blasted its way out of Mos Eisley. They must be trying to return the stolen plans to the princess. She may yet be of some use to us. We'll stop there for now, about halfway through the movie. 
We'll be back very soon to finish up Star Wars. Thank you. <laughs>